This is the Daily Detail, powered by 1819 News, Honest News. Alabama. Alabama. Our great state. The voice of Alabama values. Alabama. Unbelievable people. And now, here is Andrea Tice. Welcome to a special Daily Detail as we celebrate the independence of the United States of America. In doing so, I want to first take a little history trip to the colonial times leading up to July 4th, 1776, and leading up to the Declaration of Independence that launched the Revolutionary War against Great Britain. Let's start out in the 1720s, where there was another more subtle revolution that was taking place within the 13 colonies. It was a quiet revolution of the heart, and it no doubt played some part in setting the stage for colonists to later willingly join up with the revolutionary forces in taking on the British crown and overthrowing its tyrannical reach. Culture in the colonies in the 1720s was different than it was 100 years prior in 1620 when the Puritans landed at Plymouth Rock. The small band of pilgrims had fled the religious oppression of the Church of England and brought with them a passion for freedom of faith and practice. A hundred years later, colonists now living in North America were doing quite well economically. In fact, the Puritans' grandchildren were thriving in the New World economy with the resources, trade, and industry that was underway along the northeastern seaboard. But prosperity and the age of rationalism, known as the Enlightenment, had brought about a spiritual malaise within these colonies and since their establishment. Pastors were focused on providing intellectual messages in keeping with the Church of England and the Protestant hierarchy rather than address the spiritual needs of their congregation. Colonists who still went to church were engaged in a very ritualistic tradition, while others who were more distracted with secular endeavors didn't even bother to go. It was in this atmosphere that Dutch Reformed pastor Theodore Frelinghuysen released a book that caused quite a stir in the colonies. The title of it, The Dangers of an Unconverted Ministry. This was a direct challenge to the pastors in pulpits to evaluate their own personal faith. It also grabbed the attention of the youth within the New Jersey church that Frelinghuysen pastored. They responded to this call with a personal faith decision for God and passion for his work rather than continue in religious duty and perfunctory involvement. Professor of church history Ryan Reeves at Gordon-Conwell College in Connecticut discusses this in one of his online lectures. Now again, I think we tend to always have rose-colored glasses when we're looking on the past. The culture wars, the fights, the troubles in the church or without always seem worse in whatever generation you're living in. And so it always seems to be the case that the time around the American Revolution is something of the high watermark for the Christian faith, at least in terms of North America. Again, we need to add some more color to that portrait. This is the time of the Enlightenment. This is a time when people are losing faith as often as they are gaining it. This is a time when folks are not as open to regular church worship, or at least serious belief, as they had been maybe in the 16th century. And this is on the lips of all the Puritan or North American preachers at one time or another. They're always trying to shake people awake. Stop relying on your prosperity and the luxuries that you can afford. Take seriously your faith. Or for those who have become deistic or atheistic, there's always a call for people to return to the faith. As the seeds of revival are brewing in New England, a young man in Massachusetts enters the early stages of his ministry training. He would become aware of the spiritual changes taking place in Frelinghuysen's church. That person was Jonathan Edwards. Edwards would emerge within American history 
as a philosophical and theological powerhouse in addressing the spiritual malaise among the colonists. Early on in his life, Edwards wrote down his concerns that New England was becoming far too concerned with worldly matters. By 1741, Edwards would stand in a Connecticut pulpit and deliver in a somewhat dry and monotone voice the powerful message titled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. The audience in that Connecticut church responded to Edwards' message, as prompted by the Spirit of God, no doubt, with wails and crying, to the point that historical record says Edwards asked for the noise to be reduced so he could finish his sermon. Here's Professor Reeves again. Edwards, of course, is more of a man of science, and he appeals to the people, and he argues for them to consider God as the one who is through all and in all. It's not that God has sort of wound up the clock and allowed the universe to spin on its own, and he shows up from time to time here and there to give little moments of special providence. What Edwards stressed in a typical Protestant vein was that God is in everything, He is the sustainer as well as the provider. He shows up, yes, from time to time, but he is also the one who is very ordinary. He is in the natural world. He's in the home life. He's in everything that we do and say or speak. And therefore, we need to seek the glorification of God in everything, not simply wait around for the miracles. He also stressed very, very strongly that God can be known. He's not far off. He's not the eternal watchmaker far off in the sky. He is here in every moment, and he can be known intimately and that that is the goal of the Christian life. The second man who is also credited with great influence in this great awakening was Anglican pastor George Whitfield. As a young pastor, Whitfield first started to buck the establishment in Great Britain, which is where he was born and raised. Whitfield was not assigned a pulpit by the Church of England. So he did the most unconventional and somewhat revolutionary step of preaching in parks and open fields, and he would invite those who would not normally darken the door of a church to come. Whitfield was a short, cross-eyed, and fiery orator. He took Britain by storm in this new way of preaching and then journeyed to Savannah, Georgia for the first time in 1738. Whitfield would make several subsequent trips to the colonies, traveling up and down the eastern seaboard and delivering open-air revival meetings to any and all that included colonists, slaves, Indians, and others. His sermons drew thousands. Whitfield's manner of delivering a sermon was the exact opposite of Jonathan Edwards. Growing up, he had a fascination with British theater, so he employed the dramatic and passionate forms of speaking in his messages to the colonists. Whitfield was not putting on an act by any means. His message was very serious. He called the colonists to a personal decision of faith in Christ. As an itinerant preacher and evangelist, Whitfield is estimated to have delivered 18,000 sermons in his lifetime to about 10 million listeners, both in the colonies and Great Britain. The Great Awakening in the colonies is believed to have continued well into the 1760s, following the preachings of both Whitfield and Edwards up until their deaths. New institutions of education were created to carry forth the evangelical message. Orphanages and charities were also developed to help the poor and downtrodden in this earth as part of bringing the kingdom of God to the land rather than focus on amassing personal wealth and property. There were at least two long-standing effects that this movement had on the generations to come that would enter into the fight for independence and the Revolutionary War. First, it was the dissemination of information in a faster and broader manner through the networks that were created by these traveling preachers 
and the utilization of the printing press to record their sermons. In fact, founding father Benjamin Franklin became a friend of George Whitfield, and although he did not necessarily accept the preacher's message, he didn't object to it either, and he took part in spreading the news through published flyers and tracts. You might say that these revivals were non-denominational or interdenominational. They brought all kinds of folks together just to hear the preaching of the gospel. Whitfield would simply preach Christ, preach resting on him and his works on the cross. And then he would hold out the opportunity for folks to make a commitment to Christ at the end of his preaching. He very often liked to end his sermons with the following, quote, Come poor, undone sinner, come just as you are. And again, the reaction to Whitfield's preaching was always pretty staggering. None other than Ben Franklin himself went to hear Whitfield preach. And Ben, of course, is a deist. He doesn't really care all that much about faith. He himself is a man of science, and he's really certainly part of this more radical enlightenment that is underway. And Franklin actually says specifically about hearing Whitfield preach that he was mesmerized, that he found it pretty startling and actually very intriguing. He also makes a comment that really helps us understand what's going on here. Again, the context is of a loosening or a slacking of the faith in the new world, whether it's through opulence or indulgence, whether it's through just simply not finding the faith all that compelling, whatever it might be. Well, Ben Franklin actually says that, quote, it seemed as if all the world were growing religious. Now, what does he mean here? Well, clearly, one of the things that he means is that it's not a very religious world. This is not a time of deep, passionate, religious fervor. However, the Great Awakening is bringing some of this to bear here in the First Great Awakening. And again, it's really becoming a melting pot. Whitfield is preaching revival in a way that is bringing folks together for the sake of the faith and for the sake of increasing the faith amongst those who have grown lukewarm and of bringing back to the faith any who might have slipped away. The other effect of the Great Awakening was the call to each individual to enter into a relationship with God personally rather than to defer to the established elite's control of religious messaging or a reliance on clergy as intermediaries in the portrayal of God's heart and character. Those thousands of colonists who responded to the sermons of Edwards and Whitfield did so with complete mind, heart, and body. They responded to the spiritual call to arms, so to speak, for the kingdom of God and his eternal values well before they ever responded to the revolutionary call to arms a decade later by the Founding Fathers. The people who believed the evangelical message of the Great Awakening had found that grace and forgiveness was equally and generously given to all who came to this God, and it was done so without favoritism, discrimination, or consideration of the status of men. So this is the background spiritual context that led up to the day on July 4th, 1776, when these words were written down, that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. On behalf of 1819 News and The Daily Detail, Happy Independence Day.